Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, it's good to be back with you. We appreciate the week off. Did Pastor Chris not bring a powerful message from God's Word last week? God bless you, brother. Thank you. Love him more than he knows. I don't want his head to get any bigger than it already is, so I don't often tell him. Um, it's good to be with you. I do feel compelled to share a few words with you before we get into the message this morning. There are times when a cultural moment passes in a nation in a place during a time when we're just derelict in our duty as, as the body of Christ and especially of pastors if, if we don't address it. And it's interesting to me that a week ago this past Friday, uh, Amy and I were on vacation together. You go, I know what you're thinking. You didn't take the kids with you? Nope. <laughs> was, we love our children, but that was, that was cool. So we were away and we learned, I would imagine, around the same time as the rest of you about the reversal of a court decision that had been in effect up until that point since 1973. Now let me give you some historical perspective on that as you look into this face that has more wrinkles in it than it did six years ago and a hair on the head that is a little grayer than it was six years ago. It was one day after my first birthday that the Supreme Court of the United States declared elective abortion to be law, which means most of us have never known a culture, we've never known a time when the legal, moral, and cultural landscape of the United States did not include nationwide permission to terminate unborn life at will. That law, as of a week ago Friday, is now on the ash heap of history, and while I am not triumphing with it, I'm going to tell you, your elders unanimously agree that's where it belongs. We're thankful to God for that. But I want to say a couple of things, even in the midst of that clarity, because you can have truth without grace, can't you? There's a lot of moral complexity around this issue. Our pro-choice friends, and they are my friends, they are not my enemy. They are thoroughly confused about several things that have been deadly to millions and millions of unborn children. But they're not my enemies. They, 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 there's some things they don't get and in the midst of all of the complexity, and one of the things they're actually right about is that there is complexity. One of the things they're wrong about is to assume that if there is a measure of moral complexity in an issue, that there is no moral clarity on that same issue. And so I just, I want to say a couple things to you about this. First off is, this is not from your elders a political statement. Not only is it not primarily political, it's not really political at all. I understand that it intersects with public policy issues. That often happens. But, but we're not basing this off of some right-wing or left-wing ideology that we have retroactively decided we're going to subscribe to as your pastors, and that's going to be our final authority to which I appeal. I, I, I feel impressed to say that because so many times there's the assumption, and when you're in a hyper-politicized society, 
that's going to tend to be the assumption. And even in the church, we're prone to misunderstanding that. I hear it from the right wing when I talk about social justice, as if that makes us some kind of Marxist church, that we're going to actually take the minor prophets seriously when we talk about those things. And in recent weeks, I've heard it from the left wing when it comes to this thing of the value of unborn life. Listen, we don't get our truth from the Republicans or the Democrats. We get it from the Word of God. And so when we start with that, oftentimes it's going to be confounding and confusing to a world that just sort of naturally and reflexively associates itself either with the right or the left, and each thinks the other is the problem. The problem is human sin. And every single life, Scripture in its totality will testify to this from the moment of conception. In fact, even before conception, Scripture tells us we were in the mind of a sovereign God who before the foundation of the world willed our existence. That is the measure of every life, the value of every single life, beginning from the moment of conception, which means that termination of that life in an elective manner. Some of you are thinking, well, they're, they're hard this, there are hard cases. As I said, there's a lot of moral complexity, but about 97% of this stuff when it happens is elective. And it is a violation of the sixth commandment. There's really not another way to, to put it than that. And the fact is, you don't need a Bible for this. It's good that our authority comes from Scripture, but this isn't even a distinctly Christian argument, especially in recent years with the advancement of 4D sonography and other manners of technology that allow us to see all kinds of things about the biological fact and reality of unborn life. Brothers and sisters, if we as a culture did not know before, we have no excuse for not knowing now. It begins at conception. And the basis of a pro-life position is that there's more than one life to consider. Pro-life doesn't ignore the mom. If you're ignoring the mom, if you're arguing for locking mom up, you're not pro-life. It doesn't ignore the women or the situations that they find themselves in. Pro-life position inherently recognizes there are two lives in the balance here. And that for a period of roughly 40 weeks, those two lives cannot live independent of each other. That, that's what we believe. And so it's because of that and because we love and care about both that we are thankful but not triumphal. The purpose of this cultural moment is not to own the liberals. That's not what we're about here. The purpose of this cultural moment is to speak the truth and to do it in grace. And so your elders rejoice, but we do not strut. And I want to say that very, very clearly here. I've talked to several of our sisters in Christ who are part of this church family who have this thing in their past, and it is definitively in their past. Jesus has forgiven them for it. He has died for their sins. And I've asked them in the, the, the past few days, just how you doing? And I'll tell you what they tell me. Pro-life women who believe every word of everything I just told you. They say, well, pastor, I'm doing okay. I've had to silence quite a few people on social media. Because we think our moment here is to, is to kind of strut in victory. And so, I, I, now, why are you saying all that, pastor? I'm saying that because there are many more of those women in front of me right now. 
I don't know who you are, but I don't have to know. I've looked at the statistics. I know. Uh, and even if you're not in front of me, you are right there. You're, you're on the other side of that camera. And, and perhaps because you're younger than me, which would not be hard these days, it, you, you, you have a sense of dread because you've never known a cultural moment like this, and you have a lot of questions, and you have a lot of concerns, and you have a lot of... And, and what we want to give you is an opportunity especially if you are a post-aborted woman, to find what so many women here at Covenant have found, forgiveness, freedom, the ability to walk knowing that that sin was bled for and that you don't have to live under that shame ever again. We are not merely anti-abortion. We are not merely pro-life. We are pro-gospel. That's the only answer to any of this. And so we want to invite you to do something that's rather unusual. Here at Covenant, we try to keep things in-house. Most of the time when we tell you to communicate with us, there's a Covenant experience email address attached to it. And there's wisdom in that. But I also know in a cultural moment like this, there may be many women who have a hard time trusting the institution. And I don't want that distrust to keep you from reaching out to someone who can help you. And so I, 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 I talked briefly just a couple of days ago with Michelle Walls. She's one of our faithful deacons here. And she agreed to allow us to share her personal email address with you. It will not come to me. It will not come to our church. If you want your pastors to come into any kind of situation that you're struggling with, we will come running. But until and unless you grant that permission, it will stay with you and Michelle. She has helped countless women, and I have no idea who they are. But I imagine a few of them are probably looking at me right now. And I want to tell you, there is great freedom, and we just want to offer you that freedom. If you need to talk about anything, she's there. If you want to widen that circle, you tell her how much you want to widen it, and she'll widen it. But I want you to hear this pastor this morning. We stand on truth. We cannot ignore a significant moment like this. But we do not strut. We address it as fellow forgiven sinners. And we offer you that same eternal life. It is yours for the taking. And in fact, I get the opportunity to share that with you today in this final message. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. This is it. Did you ever think we'd get here? When we started in early January, I think some people around April or May are like, are we ever going to like, this is cool. I like this. Why? I pray that this prophetic letter stays with you. That's my prayer. I know that there's a lot of struggle. I know there are a lot of different ways that this letter gets read and interpreted. And my, my goal for you in this is, is if you want to land somewhere, that's fine. But moreover, I want the, the guts of this letter to stay with you until we see Jesus. And that's what we've learned, really, from, from verse 1 of chapter 1. This is a revelation of Jesus. This is a revelation of a person. It's not a revelation of a schematic for the future which means that this book has been for us, or it should be for us, a, a manual for discipleship. How do we grow as followers of Jesus, and how do we do that in the midst of some of the hardest times? Because that was the original context. You have a church under the thumb of Caesar, under the thumb of Roman persecution. They didn't know exactly where to go or what to do. They were, they were tempted on several fronts to compromise with the culture around them, with the political realities of their own day. And so John writes this letter to teach them how to be a disciple under fire. How do I follow Jesus in the midst of the most difficult times? Which means that we cannot primarily begin to see Revelation as a crystal ball. 
I'm not saying that it doesn't contain prophetic words. It does. But, but primarily, it's not a crystal ball. The, the letter was not written so that you and I could see into the future and know what country or what leader or what this or that and try to crack some code. Instead, the encouragement here is to look at Revelation as an x-ray. You have a fracture, you go to the doctor, they take a picture, they throw it up against backlight, and what do you do? You don't see ahead of what's happening, but you do see through, don't you? And you see where the problems are. Revelation is an x-ray into your soul and mine. It is a picture, a, a mirror, if you will, that is held up to us during the hardest times of our lives to reveal very clearly to us what we're made of in those moments. And that's what we've been learning about over the last 19 weeks. And so I hope our time together has helped you see the unveiled glory of Jesus more clearly. I pray that it has readied you for whatever comes next in your own life. Because I don't know what's gonna happen to you. I can't predict what's gonna happen, but I want it to ready you for what comes next. And, and the only way it's gonna do that is if you approach tomorrow morning knowing what comes last, his return his remaking of the world, his renewal of the cosmos and the restoration of everything that was lost because of our sin. And so as we come to a close, here's what we're going to find John doing in these last 11 verses. He, he's going to circle back to the beginning to remind us of two purposes for us. The first one is this, revelation and its message desires for you and me to take our present moment, whatever it looks like, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're facing right now, with all of the surrounding brokenness and violence and uncertainty of the world, and set that moment in light of unseen realities in the present. The whole time, John's been telling us, there is a tissue-thin veil between us and another world that we do not see, and we have to trust that those realities are there and that they're actually more real than the realities that we can encounter with our five senses. So set that in light of realities that are current. And I've got to continue to be faithful and obedient. I can't do that if I don't believe in that, that other reality. The second one, second purpose is to take this present moment and set it in light of unseen realities in the future. So it's not just that there's a, a present reality that empowers me to obedience. There's a future reality, a terminating point in history that we're all headed for. Jesus is coming. And, and what we experience in this moment will be no more. And so John concludes these visions, his instruction, his encouragement, with a challenge to faithfulness that is empowered by a singular theme, dynamite, packed into four words. The time is near. Revelation 22.10, that's how this book closes out. Now, one of the people I've learned from the most outside the church, particularly about leadership, is a man by the name of John Cotter. Dr. Cotter's professor, actually he's retired now. He was at the Harvard Business School for many years. He speaks of the need for a sense of urgency. This is how you lead change. I've got our staff reading one of his books right now. Hopefully they don't hate me too much for that. I think they're about three or four weeks into it. But how do you lead God's people? Well, there's actually some lessons even from the business world that we can learn on how to build teams and how to most importantly develop a sense of urgency. Now, last week, Pastor Chris actually quoted the late President Eisenhower as saying, what is important isn't urgent, and what is urgent isn't important. I I'm not about to contradict Chris. That was actually true. But, but what Eisenhower was talking about was not an inherent sense of urgency. He was talking about what you and I refer to as the tyranny of the urgent, where every blessed thing in your life is a four-alarm emergency. 
okay? And so Pastor Chris's lesson last week wasn't saying urgency is wrong. It was saying if everything is urgent, nothing is urgent, right? We've got to develop a, a list, a hierarchy, if you will, and that's, that's what Cotter talks about. And so a sense of urgency is a sense that, man, there is something, some things are so important that they go right to the top of the list. They deserved our swift and immediate action. That, that sense is essential to the success of any organization. So Cotter wrote a whole book on the topic for organizations that are in decline or stuck. Some of you who are business owners, you may want to take a look at it. I highly recommend it to it. Uh, the only thing wrong with Cotter is he plagiarized the Proverbs, but that's okay. That, that's the word of the Lord. And he's a brother in Christ. He says, if you want to create a sense of urgency, you have to change the status quo of an organization in a way that brings the employees to be unsettled. And you're doing it intentionally. And you're not doing it because you hate your employees. You're doing it because you realize, hey, if they're going to keep paying their mortgages with the salary they're earning from this joint, we better change course or this sucker's going to die. And the one thing that will absolutely kill an organization is complacency and resistance to necessary change. And that change will never come if there's no sense of urgency, a sense that the mission of this organization won't be executed unless we switch from A to B. Now, let me ask you a question in light of those principles. How much more should a sense of urgency exist within the church of the living God? That's what today's message is about. That's what this la these last verses are about. It ends like the book of Revelation ends, with, with a reminder that you and I need a sense of urgency. We need a, there's a message that's so important that everything else has to take a back seat to it. There's a reality that by its very existence demands your vigilance and mine. Demands our vigilance. And that urgent reality is contained in this simple Holy Spirit-inspired statement. The time is near. So what do we mean by near? Well, we're going to unpack that in just a moment. But, but here's the big idea. John closes this prophecy with a challenge. Change the status quo. And do it in three ways. You do it, first of all, by unleashing the message. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, interestingly enough, back in another apocalyptic book in the Old Testament, book of Daniel, Chapter 12, verse 4, there's a similar instruction that's given, but it's on the opposite end of the spectrum. He says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. All right, and so in Daniel chapter 12, you seal this up. Until we reach the end, the book is sealed. And so when the angel here at the end of the Bible says to John, do not seal these words up, it's time to release them, it's an indication that the end has come. And that's happened for several reasons. Number one, because it's the right time. The time is near. And let's be honest with ourselves as we sit here in this time and place. The time for what? What is he talking about? Near to what exactly? What's the, the point of reference for this? So, so nothing, I mean, there's an obvious sense of urgency in these words, but apart from the scriptures themselves, you and I would never be able to tell, would we? Nothing around us outside of scripture tells us the time is near. You go, well, wait a minute, now scripture does describe things around us, it does. But without the scriptures, you wouldn't know what any of that meant. The things transpiring around us now by themselves don't give off a lot of hope either, do they? Anybody been filled with hope over the last two years? Like just, I'm talking about just the circumstances. I, I, 
take the gospel away, take the Bible away, take your faith away. Think we're moving forwards or backwards. Let's just be honest, right? We look around and we rightly think something is very wrong. Meanwhile, the whole New Testament comes alive with this expectation that at any moment, Jesus will split the eastern sky and everything is going to be set right. And it starts with the words of Jesus himself. But Jesus uttered those words around 30 AD. Paul then would write letters to back up the words of Jesus in the 50s and the 60s. Peter will make the same claim starting somewhere around the late 60s. John writes the words we're reading today in the mid-90s, and it's 2022. So how is this near? We asked this question two weeks ago, remember? And you can only understand this correctly by disposing of the reflexive way that you and I think about time. And, and we do that by understanding a little something of the Greek language. See, the Greek language has two words for time. The first one is the word chronos. Our word chronology comes from it. And it means exactly what we typically mean when we use the word time, seconds ticking off a clock, moment by moment, succession of moments, linear history, right, that will never return again, all right? I, so when we say, for example, I, I don't have time for that, what do we mean? What we typically mean is there's not enough space in my chronology to add that event, to add that commitment or that, or that thing. That's not the word John uses here. It's not the word chronos, it's the word kairos. Kairos is a Greek concept that doesn't refer to seconds ticking off a clock. They instead refer to an opportune moment. The ancient Greeks understood this word kairos as the right moment for fundamental changes in principles and symbols. And so when the angel here says the kairos is near, he's not talking about chronology, he's talking about opportunity. Your moment as the body of Christ is here. And 2,000 years later, it's still here. It's still here. Because the book has been unveiled, the seals have been broken, the message has been unleashed. And we now have that opportunity. We're no longer in Daniel's age. Messiah has come. He has died. He has rose from the dead. He has ascended. He has promised that he is coming again. And with those events now in your rearview mirror and mine, there's no more need to seal up the book. Let it loose. It's finally time for Jesus to make, be made known to the world. It's finally time for the King of Kings to have his way in every heart. It's finally time for all of humanity to realize their God-given destiny. And 2,000 years later, it is still the right time. Because the world in this time has received fair warning. Verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Don't be distracted or concerned about the response to the message I've told you to let loose. Daniel 12.10 also references, interestingly enough, these same patterns of behavior in human beings that, that apart from the grace of God are not going to change. And the closer we get to the end, we are told, the closer we get to a moment when that behavior will be irreversible. But Jesus is coming. 
and he's bringing reward with him to those who are faithful. And you can bank on this because as he self-describes here, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Everything had a beginning point with me. Everything proceeded from me. I am the Omega. I am the end. I'm not just going to bring the end. I am personally the terminating point of all human history. And when that moment comes, we're told thirdly that a great separation is coming. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This world that attracted you, this world that told you it's no big deal, come on in, we'll put a mark on you and you'll be protected. All you have to do is identify with us. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and the morning star. So there are multiple references here back to earlier parts of the letter. He refers here to people who wash their robes. That's a reference to chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, there's a, a, a reference to the church as, as God will one day prepare her to be pure and, and holy and, and righteous. Sometimes we forget that. You get in an argument with somebody else in the body of Christ and the consumer Christianity encourages you just to jump ship and go to another church rather than actually working that out. It's interesting. Well, why wouldn't you do that? Well, because I, I mean, there's, a, there's something wrong with this church. Well, of course there's something wrong with this church. You're here. I'm here. Too often, we don't practice church in the present because we expect the present church to act like the future church. And I got to tell you, that bride is beautiful. You want to stay faithful to the Savior and to his church because one day we all will be made pure and holy and righteous. But right now, we got to look at each other without makeup on. Right now, just like a few minutes into a brand new marriage, you discover that that person that you are completely in love with has halitosis just like every other person on the planet. And they clip their toenails and throw them in the wrong place and they leave their whiskers in the sink and they throw their dirty laundry in the wrong place and they, they do all kinds of things that mess you up. Like, that's the church. Yeah, we're going to rub each other. I got a new series coming up starting next week. A, Welcome to the family. What's it like to be a part of the family? I don't, what's it like to be a part of your family? Welcome to the church. There's wonderful moments that make it worth not deserting people over. But those moments are honest, right? And so this, that's what's being described here. And then there's this word, the tree of life, back to the Eden described in the previous chapter. And, and then there's another group called the dogs. Now, I know I'm living in Shepherdstown, so let me clarify, okay? How many dog owners are in here? All right. Hey, leave your hand up if you spend more money on that dog than you got sense. That's fine. You can admit it. All right, okay. All right, now, now you can put your hands down. Um, so listen, I get it. Everybody's crazy about their dogs in Shepherdstown. I understand. And so a, a passage like this might disturb you a little bit. Listen, dogs in the first century were considered to be unclean animals. And so the reference to dog, it's actually a racial slur. It's against the Gentiles and against the pagans. That was a, it, was, it was this really strong word. And I, John evokes, invokes it here for a number of reasons. But, but, but he, what he's talking about is people who are impure and, and the dog would have been the excellent metaphor for that in the first century. And so he uses the word dogs. Now, 2,000 years later, we all know better. Dogs don't go to hell. Cats go to hell. We know this. 
right? And so it, it's, we get it. But, but it, we, here's the big idea. I just made some people mad at me, including my own children. A great separation is coming. Those without clean robes go into a fiery lake that we saw so graphically described at the end of chapter 20. What else do you need to up your urgency than a reminder that hell is hot and eternity is long and that there are people going there, including people that you know? A separation is coming. But here's the good news. An invitation is open. Nobody has to go there. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Sit in that for a minute. You and I are the guardians and the custodians of that good news. Who would not want to deliver that mail? Who would, I mean, don't you like telling people good news? Don't you like telling people that your team won? Don't you like giving your sports rival a jersey or a hat that has your team's name on it? Okay, maybe that's just me. I, don't you love coming back from this wonderful restaurant or this wonderful vacation spot? I just did this with a couple in the church just a few days ago, and I started getting text messages and pictures. They were sitting in the restaurant just yesterday, and I thought, yep, they made it. Oh, man. And then I start worrying. I'm like, well, I hope they like it. Yeah. I hope they don't come back and go, yeah, that was kind of awful um, because I recommend it. I got excited about it. I got excited about it. How jacked up are we? when we're more excited about sharing our favorite vacation spot than we are eternity. I hear people all the time say, well, I don't know how to share my faith. The same way you share your favorite vacation spot. You talk about your life. You share your story. You talk about what God has done for you, and you connect it with the story that God can do this for anybody. And you invite people into that. There's nothing canned or fake about that. We are the custodians of this. There's a path back to paradise. It's been paid for by the blood of Jesus. It contains access to the tree of life and all of its fullness and now along with and in sync with and filled with the Spirit of God. We, the bride, join with the Lord in this global invitation to every man, woman, and child. Come. Are you thirsty? There's something to drink. Are you tired? We'll give you rest. Are you broke? It's all free. Come, open, universal, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, unseal this message. It is the right moment right now. That's what, that's what John is telling us. The time has come. Unleash the message and do it, secondly, by being faithful to the mission. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the prophecy of this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And then there's the refrain, amen, come Lord Jesus. So it's a warning for us against the willful distortion of the message. And it's not the, it's not the first time we've seen this sort of thing. 
to Moses and the Israelites. God says in Deuteronomy 4, you shall not add to the word that I commanded you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Paul, centuries later to the Galatian church, but even if we are an angel from heaven, even if he's got a pretty suit on, even if he sold a lot of books, even if he makes you feel good, if he preaches to you a gospel contrary to what I preach to you, let him be accursed. What was happening? When each of these instances, there, there was a human explanation or interpretation of God's word that was being elevated to the same authority as the text itself. And Jesus is telling us here, nothing is above my word. And sometimes it's hard to get this right. See, this is why church, again, I'm, I really am segueing into that brand new series. We'll start next week about what it means to be part of a, of a church family. You can't get this right without being in community. I mean regularly. I mean every seven days. I know that makes some of you mad because you'd rather be fishing or doing whatever the crap you're doing. But you, you can't. I, I, I'm saying that for your good. I love you. If I see you out, I'm not, you don't have to be weird around me. I, I, I love you. I'm not going to be ill with you. I'm not going to be frustrated with you. I'm telling you this for your good. You've got to be in community to get this right. Otherwise, you're going you're to get out of alignment. There are a couple of ways this happens. Here at Covenant, we're a little different than we tend to navigate between what we consider to be two extremes, hyper-charismatic on the one hand, hyper-textual on the other. And, and what, we've, what we've discovered, or at least what I've discovered in my experience, is you can, it, it, particularly if you're disconnected from community, eventually you're going you're gonna to fall in one or the other ditch. Hypertextual can be found among a group called cessationists. Um, I, I, I have many cessationist brothers. Many of them are my academic colleagues. They're wrong, but I love them, and they're not inherently in sin. But sometimes you can be so cessationist that you forget there there actually is an active Holy Spirit at work, right? And and they say, well, the miraculous visions, the dreams, tongues, all that ceased with the closing of the canning of Scripture. We have everything we need right here. We even have a group of folks in, in our particular tribe of churches that have been kind of arrogantly said, we have a book, as if I don't believe that. Yeah, I know we have a book. Yes, I believe it's sufficient to guide us, including guiding us in interpreting dreams and visions and miracles and messages in tongues. But if you're hyper-charismatic and you're going, well, well, amen to that, well, what you've got to be careful of is this whole loosey-goosey, blown about by every wind of doctrine, follow the Spirit of God with little regard for the written word. So I would, at the risk of oversimplification, I would say if, you're, if you tend toward hypertextualism, your, your, your tendency is to replace the Holy Spirit with the Bible. That never ends well. If you're hypercharismatic, your tendency is to replace the Bible with the Holy Spirit. That never ends well. I'm going to tell you why. The Holy Ghost and the Holy Bible are never at odds with each other. That's why. That's why. And so when we, and listen, I'll admit, I mean, my own lived experience, I grew up Baptist. If God ever spoke to me audibly, I'd probably have a stroke. So I, all right, there's, there's my bias. I'm not telling you that that's got to be right for you or you, right? We, but we're in community, aren't we? We're in community. You know, I read James and, and it says, you know, uh, anoint them with oil. And I've always read that personally as, as an applying of medication. I think that was an ancient way in which they described it. My charismatic Pentecostal friends don't 
agree with that. They, take, they tend to take that more literally. And you know what? We worship in the same church together. And, and, and if somebody comes forward and says, I've got cancer, I've got heart disease, I mean, I want somebody to pray for me. Can you anoint me with oil? I go looking for a Pentecostal. Because I ain't got no oil. I'm a Baptist, right? But I go look for somebody that does. You know why? Because the person in front of me is more important than whatever my proclivity is at the moment. That's what it means to be part of the body. And when you drift into one area or the other, and that this really is the heart of what he's getting at, is with that understanding, Jesus says, don't add to this book, don't take away from this book. You unleash it as I have revealed it and do not deviate. I am not God's editor, I am his messenger. And this is why oftentimes I get in trouble in a hyperpolarized world with the right and the left, because they both got sin to repent of. And when you call that crap out, you got to be faithful, but you got to be faithful. And so it's why on the one hand, I've been honest with you in this series about what I believe scripture says, but I've also tried to give you the broad perspective, particularly with Revelation, about how, how other followers of Jesus have understood this. There still are. This is your last week to avail yourself right through that door. Scholarly commentaries and resources that don't agree with me, and they're in the lower lobby because ultimately the focus is not on whether or not you agree with Pastor Joel. The church has been arguing about this stuff for two millennia. The primary focus is, with all of those possible interpretive schemes in view, let's get to the heart of the application. Don't raise your interpretation to a level of authority where it doesn't belong because the aim of this entire series is what is at the heart of God's message? And here at the end, we're told what the heart of that message is. In verses 10 to 17, do not seal up this book, unleash it. In verses 18 to 20, don't change it, don't deviate from it. We stay faithful to his message and when we do that, have you seen how beautiful the result is? Look back at verse 20 with me again. What, you see that picture? Groom and bride. Anybody remember their wedding day? Man, she looked awesome. I'm just telling you. July the 30th, 1994. What a day. All right. And what did we do? We spoke to each other. Why, why do you do all those things in a, in a wedding ceremony, a formal wedding ceremony? While, while the Bible doesn't necessarily prescribe that, Scripture does tell us in no uncertain terms that that union that Amy and I entered into and the unions that you have entered into with your spouse are to be uh, reflective of that larger relationship between Jesus and his church. And so those vows going back and forth, that truth being spoken one to the other, Man, it's an ultimate picture of what we've got right here in verse 20. Groom and bride in sync with each other's heart. Cry out toward the other, one to the other. I am coming soon to the other one. Amen. Come. Come. Nothing will keep you faithful like that picture. Unleash the message. Be faithful to the mission. Here's the final word. Hope in Jesus. Verse 21, very last word. You know, we talk about famous last words. What would you want your last words to be? I was on a cell phone back before it was illegal to talk on them while you're driving. And I was with a colleague of mine, and somebody cut me off, and I almost had a horrible accident. And I pulled over to the side of the road, and I said, uh, I said to my colleague, I said, hey, um, I'm kind of shook up here. I'm about to get back out in the road, but... You know, by the way, if anything like that ever happens, no matter what comes out of my mouth, it may be something really ugly and really unchristlike. Please tell my wife that my last words were that I loved her, even if that's not what I say. 
We're all concerned about that. We're all concerned about what our last word, we don't want it to be that kind of thing. I have a pastor friend of mine in Texas, the newly elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He and I have a, have a, a, a thing in common that both of our mothers suffered from Alzheimer's disease. Mine's already passed on and been healed. His is still with him and he visits her regularly and, and we both talk about the, the genetics of that and what, what that could potentially mean for us. And he said, he said, my greatest fear is that all of the, the fight that I did in my entire life to remain holy and to be faithful to Jesus is just going to be punctuated by some lecherous old perverted man walking around a nursing home. Um, why? Because we are worried about our last words. Last words matter, don't they? Listen to the very last words of the Holy Spirit to you and me. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We don't want this hope just for us. We want the grace of Jesus to be with all. That's the final prayer of all of Scripture in this benediction. With, by the way, is a very fluid term in Greek. It can mean with, as in close proximity. It can mean behind. It can mean beyond. It can mean after. It can mean ahead. However it's translated, it is a locative description of a grace that is closer to you than your fingertips. And so the wish for the world, based on this closing of the canon of Scripture, is wherever you are, whoever you are in the world, may you be surrounded by his grace. May it be unavoidable. May it be in your face. And may it be so for eternity. Is that not what you want for your coworkers, for your family, for your friends? Is that not what we should want for our Jewish and Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist and atheist and agnostic brothers in humanity? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13. And the cry of the heart of the Holy Spirit here is, may that message never be out of your view. May you never travel, wherever you are, Christian or not, may you never travel beyond being able to hear that message. May it cover you. And 2,000 years later, there's still the heart cry of every soul legitimately changed by Jesus. Is that your heart and mine? If we hope in Jesus, that's what it'll look like. That's what our deference toward the world will look like. Several years ago, the New York Times published a story about a, the growing popularity of something called the Mayberry Festival. Who's familiar with Andy Griffith in here? Yeah, it had already canceled by the time I was born, but I remember watching those reruns at my grandparents and at my mom's, and on occasion we'll watch reruns on, I don't know, whatever one of the 48 different streaming services we've subscribed to lately. I, I, it's in there somewhere, and it takes place, I don't know if you know this, Mount Airy, North Carolina is an actual town, and it was the town that the Andy Griffith Show was based on. And, and all these years later, this popular TV series takes us back to what appears to be a very simple time, a much nicer time. And he, even those of us who weren't born then are attracted to the romanticism of Mayberry. And the New York Times article was exploring that fascination. Thousands each year, according to the article, and I'm quoting now, flock to celebrate a place that never was, a place they chose to believe once existed. People become less to escape, they come less to escape than to search. They want to know if there really was a place like this. And if we're realistic, we, we know there wasn't. Because here's what Mayberry did. Here's what the Andy Griffith show did. It did what any good entertainment would do, what any good television show would do. It took all of the best elements of the 1950s 
and 60s, all that stuff that we value, all that stuff that we rightly as followers of Jesus would say, man, it'd be great if we could get back to some of those things, small towns and home-cooked food and treating everybody like a neighbor and a common moral structure that was clear and everybody agreed to it, nobody was arguing about it. It took all the best elements of that period of history and then it pushed out all of the bad ones. I've never seen an episode of the Andy Griffith Show that dealt with the fear of nuclear confrontation or racially segregated church, uh, segregated lunch counters, which were also present. Why did it do that? Well, I don't think they were trying to lie about our history. I think they were just trying to provide entertainment. But sometimes we get so fascinated with a past period of history that we romanticize it and it, and it becomes this make-believe place because, because deep down inside, we kind of want a place like that to exist, don't we? In this book, we have learned that there is, in fact, such a place. Right now, as we sit here, the Lord Jesus is getting it ready for you and me. And one day, he's going to bring it. No culture war is going to bring it about. There's no way you and I can create this kind of moment. Jesus will bring it. And so here, here's the big question as we close this series. Are you currently living like you actually believe that's true? Do you prayer walk your neighborhood with those kinds of realities in mind? Are you living for a city of God that's coming? Do you long for it? Is it your greatest and deepest hope? Has the image the imagery that we've seen throughout these 22 chapters ignited your imagination and fueled your intellect and launched you forward with renewed faith toward that end. And are we, corporately, the bride of Christ at covenant, are we singing along with the Spirit of God and saying to the world, come, come, this moment is on its way. As I put this series together, starting around last November, I began preaching it in January, and, and in that time, I have begun another decade of life on this earth. And it's grabbed me in a way I didn't think it would. I make jokes about being old and doing stuff like that. But turning 50 kind of, it, it grabbed me. Not always in a bad way, though. And, and here's, here's what I think is probably true. You don't have to agree with me on this. But I, the longer I live, the more I'm coming to the conclusion that a midlife crisis is inevitable. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Everybody tells you, well, a man gets a certain age, he has a midlife crisis, and what you want to do, you want to avoid them. No, everybody's going to have a midlife crisis. The question is whether it's going to be a righteous one or an unrighteous one. That's the question. Because there are three kinds of, of midlife crises for men. I didn't, women probably have these two, but I'm just speaking to the dudes for a moment. As I have experienced them, as I have interacted with other men, there are three kinds. The one is the stereotypical kind that you automatically think about when you hear that phrase midlife crisis it's wicked it's nasty it's this perverted older lecherous man who departs from his duty to his wife and his family if in fact God has given him that and then he ends up with some 19 year old stupid young lady who thinks he won't do the same stuff to her as soon as her body shape changes all right that that's a midlife crisis that's also wicked and there are a lot of men on their way to hell because they've lived like that and it's, a demo, it's demonstrative of what's going on in their soul. But, but there's another kind of midlife crisis, a second kind, that I think is actually even more sad than that. It's somebody who keeps their stuff together, they, they maintain their position in society, but they're, they're, they're dominated by fear. 
They go into a shell. Like their, their sole aim in life, as if the sole purpose of human life is to just survive and not die, is to just get the Medicare eligibility, right? I'm just going to hunker down, and I'm going to push through. I'm not taking any chances. And, and I mean, for, for somebody of that mindset, the last two years, you've just gone bonkers because you've realized whether you, and you may not even be a place now where you even admitted it, mainly the ground under your feet is shifting. You got nothing to stand on to even guarantee you'll make it to Medicare eligibility. Hope that encourages you, right? But that's sad. The third kind is a righteous sense of holy discontent with the status quo. And I think that's what all of Revelation is calling all of the church to. It's either going to be righteous or it's going to be unrighteous. So, so let, me, let me just tell you how this study has affected me. And you take it for whatever you think it's worth. The next 15 to 20 years of my life, when I think about two things. Number one, God willing, I should be able to, in that time frame, keep my health, depending on what I do with bacon, and... I should be able to keep my reflexes. I should be able to, God willing, keep my mind, all right, until I'm 70 years old. And for some of, by the way, some of you that are after 70 and you're like, good, I can, no, Moses got started when he was freaking 80. I don't want to hear that as an excuse for you to just sit there on your blessed assurance. This is Joel's testimony, all right? I'm just saying, here's, I'm not saying I won't serve Jesus until I'm 95. Here's what I am saying. I'm still probably going to have my health and my reflexes and my mind. And coupled with that is a, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm the smartest guy in the room because I never have been, all right? But, but there is just sort of naturally by life experience, there's a little more wisdom there, okay? I'm not saying, hey, I've got, I got all kinds of wisdom to dispense with. What I am saying is at this place in my life, I've still got my health and I ain't nearly as stupid as I was when I was in my 30s. That's what I'm saying. Now, you put those two together, and here's, here's Joel's midlife crisis. The next 15, 20 years are the best I have to give to Jesus. They're the best I've got. And it scares me a little bit because I think about how I'm going to have to be held account for the stewardship of this segment of my life. I, th I think he created all of this right here for a moment like this one. And I'm so glad he put me here for this moment. The typical preacher talk, really even outside preacher circles, is, yeah, a guy comes in, he does something, and the church grows and all that. And then some big mega church is going to come over and snap him up. If y'all had any idea how little interest I had in that scenario playing out in my life, and there are several reasons for it, but you want to eat lunch, so I'm not going to get into all that to you. I just want to tell you, not, and I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but nothing would give me more joy than to spend my sunset years right here. Six years ago, I said, I believe this is a sleeping giant. I, I think the giant's about to wake up. I think the giant's a little smaller than she was six years ago, a little leaner, a little meaner, but a lot more potent. I don't want to minimize what COVID has done to so many families, but I think it has shaped and molded the body of Christ for a moment like this. A sovereign God has used 
the goings-on in the world to reveal who really belongs to Jesus and who's just looking for power or influence or money. I think that's where we're at. So I, and I think, furthermore, the most strategic place a pastor can be in a moment like we're experiencing right now is not in the big, and I love our, my brothers who, who serve in the big cities. I think that's incredibly crucial. But the most strategic place is actually in these small towns where we're forced to actually live like neighbors. I think the church has something to offer them. I long, I ask the Lord, God, let me make it to Medicare eligibility, continuing to make disciples and expand the kingdom to raise up men and women to lead, including whoever, Again, this isn't next year. This isn't the year. This is, this is a few years out. But I, but I have asked the Lord personally, would you, boy, if, it, if it's all the same to you, Father, would you allow me to maybe make an investment in whoever's going to stand up here after me? I'm already starting to think like that because it's going to move. I'm not saying that with regret or sadness. I'm saying that with hope for what's coming. This is how Pastor Joel thinks about his life. Is this too much? You're too deep? TMI? Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to be sitting in my chair probably before my work here is done. I, I, and I'm asking the Lord, would you grant that? Conversely, I am convinced of this. I will not spend the next 15, 20 years of ministry managing nonsense. I don't have time for it. I just don't. I'm not going to do it. The, 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 the staff will tell you. I don't usually call it nonsense. I usually call it boneheaded nonsense. I've used that for six years with our staff. And they should know by now, every, to the man and to the woman, if they have a bona fide crisis in their family. I'm there. Those are my people. They are my team. I am there. They start turning on each other over stupid crap. I'm leaving the room. I don't have time for it. And the older I get, the less patience I have with drama and unnecessary crap. I'm not telling you that because I'm mad. I'm telling you that because I, well, you just, I'm sharing my heart with you. You should, you should hear that too. Because I, and more, more is coming on this in this, this next series that's coming. I want to invite you along, the whole body, to see what God does in the next 10 to 15 years. To keep the majors the majors. To keep looking at what's really important. And the difference between those two, between giving the best that you've got to Jesus and just managing the status quo until you retire or die is really simple. It's whether you have captured, as you look at this text, a vision of the unveiled glory of Jesus. Because once you get that, you never go back. So right here and right now, what have you not yet laid down or surrendered to him to embrace that vision and to live in light of that glory. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, may that be the cry of our hearts as we conclude this series. 
And as we launch into a new one next week that, that kind of maps out the process from A to B. Lord B, as you're coming and until that moment comes, the way in which we get there is by living in community, being part of a family. So Father, I, I pray that you would reaffirm our commitment to you and to your message and to the proclamation of that message, the, the tangible demonstration of that kingdom through the work of your church. And Lord, today I pray that there are folks who leave with hope in Jesus. So often we live in the hope that things are going to change or that things are going to get better or that things, and they might. But Lord, we have no guarantees of that anywhere in Scripture. We are guaranteed this, that ultimately you will return, you will set everything right. Our ultimate hope, everything we do, can be done in joy and in the freedom of the gospel when we live in light of that coming moment. So, Father, I pray your richest blessings on these people that, who, for whom you have put a love in my heart that I didn't know was possible. Move them towards you. Help them to clear out what Paul called civilian affairs, the things that will, in many ways, themselves end up on the ash heap of history. They will be the wood, hay, and the stubble that you describe in your word in 1 Corinthians, Lord. Help them to invest in gold and jewels and, and the precious stones of the kingdom. And may they do it with this glorious picture of Jesus before them. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, Father, may you just give us the ability today to open wide the door to welcome them into the kingdom of God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.